On October 6, 2013, the Ash Center collaborated with the American Repertory Theater on a performance of Robert Schenken's play, All the Way, a narrative of Lyndon B. Johnson's first year as president. Following the play, Ryan McKittrick of the ART led a discussion with Harvard Kennedy School professor Alex Kazar and cast member Michael McKean. This event was part of the Challenges to Democracy Public Dialogue series celebrating the 10th anniversary of the Ash Center. My name is Ryan McKittrick. I'm the Director of Artistic Programs here at the American Repertory Theater. Thank you so much for coming to our post-performance discussion this afternoon. I'm thrilled to welcome Alex Kayser this afternoon. We're so lucky to have him here. Um, I'm going to uh, uh, turn this over to Archon Foon for just a minute uh, from the Ash Center, who's going to introduce the event. This is the first in a series of discussions that the ART is doing with the Ash Center um, as part of their Challenges to Democracy series. So we'll do another one for Robin Hood um, later in our season, and I'll let Archon just say a few words, and then Alex and I will get going. Thank you very much, Ryan. Thanks, everyone, for uh, joining us. It's a delight to see so many people stick around after the play, which was uh, wonderful. First time I've seen it, second, second time for Alex, and uh, maybe uh, some repeat customers here. Uh, my name is Arkan Fung, and I'm a professor at the Ash Center, which is part of the Harvard Kennedy School. And it's the 10th anniversary of the Ash Center, and as to commemorate the 10th anniversary, over the next two years, we'll be having a number of events examining challenges to American democracy, and we're focusing on 10 different themes. And one of the themes is the power of the presidency. Another theme that we'll be uh, that we've begun examining this year is inequality in American democracy. And the third theme that we'll be beginning this year is immigration and population and the changes in the American um, citizenry, electorate, and populace. And that is a major challenge to democracy. Um, and so uh, join us with some of these events. will be uh, in conjunction with the ART, our uh, event on inequality, which opened the series earlier in this week. Some of you may have heard the uh, second uh, episode of On Point, which broadcast on Friday at 11 p.m., and that was an event that occurred at the Harvard Kennedy School Forum. It was a discussion about inequality in American democracy, and if you missed that, then uh, you can uh, stream it on the web, and then look on our website, ash.harvard.edu, for the other events in this series. Some of them will be talks, some of them will be films, some of them will be cultural events, and we're really kind of making an effort to reach out just kind of beyond Harvard University to include and, and work with um, the whole community in the Boston area and beyond. And um, I'd like to introduce now uh, my good friend and colleague, Alex Kazar, who's a professor of history and policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. He's an he's expert on, on many, many aspects of uh, American politics, but also beyond America. A couple of those are uh, labor history. Alex is a labor historian and also uh, the country's foremost historian on the right to vote and the evolution of uh, electoral rights and the continuing challenges that those pose in the United States. So uh, I'll hand it over to Ryan now and Alex. <laughs> Thank you. Actually, yes. Hey. I'd like to welcome Michael McKean. I'm just here to remind you that I'm nice. No evidence to display today. 
<laughs> so, Alex, I know you've prepared a few remarks, so I'll start by giving you the floor for just a bit, and then uh, I will ask um, Alex and Michael some questions to get the conversation going, and then we'll open it up to you all and take any questions that you might have. If you do have a question, please allow me to come to you with the microphone, because people can't hear you without the microphone. Alex. Thanks, Ryan. Um, uh, at first, it was, re it was really a pleasure and an honor to be here. This is the second time I saw the play, and I found that it to be even more compelling uh, the second time. I thought I, I would just comment about two things um, that might be of interest to some people in, in the audience before we get into a conversation. The first, speaking, speaking as a historian, and all historians, of course, are experts on all aspects of history, um, but, um, but that I am stunned by how historically accurate this play is, okay? I mean, and not only in the broad strokes, broad strokes, yes, I mean, of course, certain things are dramatized uh, and condensed in that way, but even in, you know, many of the small eddies and details, uh, Stanley Levison was a real person who had been a member of the Communist Party. That whole story of his having to leave SCLC uh, was, was true. Fannie Lou Hamer did chew out uh, Hubert Humphrey in precisely that way and much precisely those words. I actually, I, I, I got caught up in this, in this project, so I began doing some, some additional research and I found an awful lot of this, not just in the formal speeches, is actually taken verbatim from, from memoirs and recollections and accounts. Um, I mean, Fanny Lou Hamer's uh, chewing, uh, her testimony is recorded, but her chewing out of Humphrey was not recorded. Um, but those, those words are quite precise. And George Wallace did offer himself uh, as Goldwater's potential vice president. I mean, all those things really happened. And in that sense, is one way in which I sort of think of this play as a kind of potentially hugely important national history lesson. Uh, and I mean that quite seriously. I mean, since, you know, many people in this room and other rooms are, are you know, this was before their time. Um, I, I, I actually, for me, there was a little bit of nostalgia. I was at the Atlantic City Convention in 1964. I mean, for young, of course. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, um, the second thing I, I just wanted to comment on, not to develop a particular theme, but just to, to mention is that it's also, it's stunning when you think about the 12 months covered by this play, it is stunning how much happens in this 12 month period and what a truly critical you know, moment it is, even if by the end of it you can't see all the outlines of everything that's happening. I mean. I mean, you know, obviously Kennedy is assassinated, Johnson becomes president, the war on poverty is launched, the Civil Rights Act is passed. The Beatles came to America. The Beatles? No, that's, I mean, that was actually, I, I was building up to that. Oh, so, uh, <laughs> um, it's also the moment when the Republican Party is first captured by its extreme right wing, uh, which is very important. The war in Vietnam is getting uh, um, included. I mean, this is all suggested. I mean, you know, that's a lot. And then there's even enough other stuff going on. I mean, one thing was that was, you know, a subplot of the subplots of the subplot that, that didn't make its way in there was that despite Johnson's, Johnson was tremendously apprehensive that the Walter Jenkins thing was going to be, was going to turn into a big campaign scandal and that Goldwater would use it uh, because Goldwater had been, 
accusing Johnson and people around him of all sorts of corruption. Uh, but to, uh, you know, Johnson, I don't think, was not capable of arranging this, but to Johnson's great relief, the Walter Jenkins affair disappeared from the newspapers two days afterwards because two days afterwards, Khrushchev was thrown out of power, the Labour Party came to power in Britain, and the Chinese exploded their first nuclear device. Uh, uh, you know, <laughs> you know that, that was all one day in October in 1964. So it really is this quite, quite extraordinary period that is captured so uh, impressively by this play. And, and now I turn it back to you. Yeah. And Michael, thinking about historical accuracy for a moment, the, the playwright Robert Schenken often said, I'm a dramatist, not a historian. But I'm wondering, could you talk a little bit about the research that you did for Hoover? And were there tapes? <laughs> Well, um, yeah, okay. Um, way too loud. Uh, you know, I, I um, Hoover is, is one of the most secretive people in this play, and as he was in life. Uh, a lot of what what made Hoover Hoover stayed under wraps until he died, and then long afterwards. Um, and, and and doing research about Hoover was very frustrating. Because we never, you never saw him speaking extemporaneously. You only saw very prepared scripts. I saw one uh, very interesting piece of him speaking to a VFW hall. And I won't do the impression, because I don't do the impression now on the stage or, or here. But he would start a phrase, and if he made a mistake, he'd go back and do the phrase again. There was nothing about him that was off the cuff. It was all very carefully cultivated. He was a triumph of PR, as he was from the very beginning. Um, he was a guy who really knew the right people to hire as far as organizing this remarkable engine of, of, of enforcement and later oppression that, that he put together. Um, but he wasn't a people person. Um, politically, the mystery of this play is what is his problem with MLK? And I have personal personal things I'm not going to share with you, but <laughs> uh, which have to, have to do with a very frustrated man. But uh, I also think that he was wary of anyone who would attain power in some field that he couldn't do anything about. He knew how to trash people as communists. He knew about how to, how to, to uh, you know, scandalize people's lives. But he really couldn't control people who had that charismatic power that King had. And I think that's one thing that he was so terrified. I can't, I don't play uh, Hoover as a racist because first of all, I don't think that's a very interesting thing to play. Um, but I kept thinking back, I was uh, the great pleasure when I was a, a kid at NYU, uh, one of my acting teachers was Lloyd Richards, who's called the great interpreter of, uh, of um, um, August Wilson's work, as many others. Uh, a wonderful teacher as well. And I was doing a scene, you know, naive 19-year-old. I had seen a play called Blues for Mr. Charlie, which was a wonderful play about racism in the South and murder. And I was playing the, the, the bad white guy, and my black friend was playing the, 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 the flawed black character. And it just the scene wasn't working. I was being as rageful and as racist and as bad as I could possibly be. And Lloyd took me aside and he says, this scene is about love. <laughs> I was so confused. I said, what are you talking about? Just do it. And I did it. And I realized that 
What he meant was, it's personal in a way that you can't define. So that's what I had to do here. I had to find something that was personal that I didn't have to, I don't have to put into words for you guys because I didn't put it into words for me yet, or may never. But um, uh, I, 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 if I'm playing a character, it has to be on a very personal level. And the research I did was mainly about a presentation, about how this man presented himself. Because like I say, it's veiled in, in mystery. I hope I've dodged the question successfully. <laughs> Alex, uh, LBJ talks in this play about launching a war on poverty. Do you think that we've lost that war? Uh, I think we surrender. Um, I'm not, I, you know, it's, um, you know, Ronald Reagan's famous comment about that was we had a war on poverty and poverty won. But in fact, that was a distortion of the record. Johnson's war on poverty had some considerable successes. I mean, and the problems in the way it was, you know, run and administered, and it also was costing money. Um, so I don't think, we, I don't, we didn't lose that war in the sense of we waged a full-scale war for as long as it would have taken and we lost. But Reagan's comments, you know, 20 years later are a symbol of having uh, surrendered the effort. I mean, and it's notable, uh, you know, one of the other things, when you, when you get back into reading the materials of the 60s and even, you know, some of the discussions Johnson was calling in people, you know, and convening these groups about the uh, about the war on poverty. And the real disagree, you know, one, the, the official position was poverty could be cured in the United States forever for two billion dollars. Okay, and the debate among among a, a lot within a lot of circles was whether it would take ten years or twenty years to cure poverty forever in the United States. Uh, you know, it's, it seems. It just can make you very nostalgic to think about that because it's, it seems to me no one is talking now about eradicating poverty in the United States. And let's talk even more specifically about the present moment that we find ourselves in. The uh, we're living in a time when 95% of the economic recovery has gone to the top 1%. And I'm just wondering if you could reflect on our our, our democracy now and what kind of threat that that poses to our democracy. A small question. Um, <laughs> um, look, I think I mean my my reading of the historical record, and it's not just mine, is that great inequality does not coexist for very long with a democratic polity. It just doesn't, and and we can even understand the mechanisms through which uh, through which that happens, because what seems to inescapably happen is that people who wield great economic power will end up trying to use that to influence the political system and to change the political system um, in such a way that it's no longer the case that all uh, voices are heard equally or that all people get to participate um, or get to participate equally. Uh, and I think I think I think we are at a I mean at a moment of great danger. And it's in contrast to the 60s. I mean, one of the notable things about what's going on in the in the 60s and also in the 50s, is that democracy is expanding at that moment and inequality is narrow. I mean, that, that's one of the other truly remarkable things. We're now, you know, inequality obviously is higher now than it has, or the general statistics are that it's higher than it has been uh, since the 1920s. And it seems to me that it is very much at the point where it's starting to, where it has started to undercut the reality of American democracy. If by democracy we mean a society in which all people's 
interests and concerns count equally. A question for you both. Uh, what do you think uh, politicians today could learn from LBJ? Mm. <laughs> yeah, I just think, I think that, that um, the danger is that there was something about LBJ that was untouchable or unmatchable and therefore not a great fountain of, of, of wisdom. Um, this is a pretty salty character. This is, you know, this is a guy who is very specific, a specific kind of person. And these days we're so much, everything is about the cult of personality. And you can't just put on that mask and, and, and do that. Um, besides, I mean, there are, there are moments in this play where he reveals his own self-interest. When he goes to the Rose Garden and makes that speech specifically to, to, have, to get Fannie Mae uh, Hamer off, off the TV, that's kind of a ratty thing that he did. But it was, it was you know, it was, it was what he, he, he knew to do. Um, Listen, I think that everyone can use a real shot of idealism uh, if it's seasoned with the kind of cynicism that he seemed to have as well. So I don't know the answer to that question. I think I wasted enough time. I was hoping you'd take longer. Um, uh, I, I, don't, I don't know the answer either. I mean, certainly, one, you know, in, in our current situation, it would be hard to imagine a contrast starker in terms of how dealing with con Congress than that between Lyndon Johnson and Barack Obama. Right, who, who seems, who has seemed ever since he was elected to be quite clueless about how to deal with Congress, um, and you know now, Johnson was, you know, Johnson had been majority leader, and he also, I mean, he, 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 he had a sense in a way of how to deal with politicians, both as people and to deal with their political uh, interests, and, and and he was quite, he was quite ruthless about it. Um, I think that. Uh, I think that the other thing that one might learn from Johnson, I mean, Johnson in his own really quite, I mean, quite bizarre ways, obviously a very unusual figure, was also able to, to keep some part of his vision on what seemed to be a historic change that was going that was going on in the society and about the South, and that recognizing that this, that that there was something underway, and, and you know, and you. You could either you could either help move it along or stand in its way, um, and he was and he in the end tilted to help him move it along, and, and I think you know and he's doing that while he's also you know counting votes and counting donations, uh, and you know probably you, you do have to do both. And let's talk about voting rights for a minute because we just saw a play. It's of course the Voting Rights Act is passed to follow in the next year, which is actually the focus of the sequel to this play, which mm -hmm. Robert Schenken yeah, right. is writing. Yes, it's called The Great Society. Um, but Can we, I be in it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we're obviously watching on stage a movement towards um, voting rights for all, and now just as the cast was getting ready to begin rehearsals this summer, the Supreme Court invalidated uh, a key part of the Voting Rights Act. Do you feel like we're moving now backwards in the opposite direction? Yes, I mean I think I, I think that we are. I mean I think. Uh, you know the. It's not. It's not just the Supreme Court. I mean, what this, the Supreme Court did, um, although there's a certain plausible within the framework of how you make legal arguments, there was a certain plausibility 
to what the, to what to what they were saying about um, in effect some standards applying only to some states and not to others. But uh, you know, as uh, as Justice Ginsburg said afterwards, it's like throwing you away your umbrella because it doesn't have to be happen to be raining one day. Uh, you know, it's and, and what the Supreme Court did was, I think, a quite deliberate step back. You know, um, and. And then it, it also, it, but that it also exists in a context. I mean, it's in the context of also the voter ID requirements, cutting back on early voting, cutting back on Sunday voting, um, a lot of things that that have been happening to make it more difficult for people to vote, more difficult, particularly for poor people to vote, uh, many of whom are black. But it's it's not just that. I mean, and I think that you know one has to see this as a part as as part of very severe partisan combat. I mean, the most, the, the, the strictest laws uh, that have been passed uh, in the last year or two were passed in North Carolina, uh, which is a truly extraordinary uh, law. And North Carolina had been the state which had had both a liberal and a conservative uh, tradition. Now, you think, well, why did it happen in North, in North Carolina? Well, because Barack Obama won North Carolina in 2008. I mean, really, and the, and the Democrats were gaining votes um, and they and it's all North Carolina is also very very closely contested. Although it has this completely reactionary legislature right now, actually the Democrats got just about as many votes in the last legislative elections as the Republicans did. But the Republicans controlled the districting in 2010 um, and gerrymandered. <coughs> and I think um, you know I, I think I think North Carolina stands as a certain symbol for the for the rest of the country. I think we are. Um, I think that there are strong factions of the country. I mean, again, something to allude to. All of these voter ID laws, <coughs> or most of them, um, just about all of them except the one in Rhode Island that have been passed, they didn't just sprout up coincidentally in 33 different states. There was a template that was drawn up by a very conservative organization called the American Legislative Exchange Council, which sent out the template and pressed uh, a lot of people to get involved in. And it's a Koch-funded um, uh, you know, enterprise. So that w what we're seeing is a coordinated national campaign for partisan um, and broader ideological purposes to trim away at, at, at voting rights in a way that, that I think, I mean, you, you can say statistically well how many people are going to be deprived of the right to vote or, you know, the things, and I don't think the numbers are what's important. What's, what's important is the fact of not accepting as a basic premise that the majority decides and that all people do have the right to cast their votes equally. When I, when I first heard about the, the North Carolina decision specifically and the, the Supreme Court decision, my first thought was to a friend of mine, I love him dearly, I've known him for 40 years, he's as batty as a churchyard in August. This guy is like a sincere neurotic. And like I say, I love him. And one day, some years back, he came to me and he says, I just fired my shrink. And I said, why? He says, I'm cured. And I didn't have the heart to tell him, no, you're still a lunatic. You know, you're, you're still insane. And that's kind of how I felt about this. And I said, well, we don't need this voting rights line because we're all good now. We're all, we're all, no, nobody's a racist anymore. It didn't happen. So. Were the, were, did you talk as an ensemble a lot about the passage of the, vote, the, the, the Supreme Court's decision? Or I know during rehearsals, yeah, we celebrated. Yeah, we sat over there where those, those the, the, the put down chairs are. And we talked a lot. We talked about every element of the play. Yeah. And uh, 
lucky to have Mr. Schenken there with us the entire time, and, and uh, we covered pretty much everything. And, um, you know, we looked at it in terms of not so much history and not even so much emotional history, but just as people who had to, had to do these parts, had to, to make this story uh, make sense. So we, we looked for everything that made sense to us and that, that, that we could work with. Um, but apart from us on the stage, there's a whole lot of rage and a lot of curiosity and also a lot of love. So, you know, we got it done. So I'd like to open it up to the audience for questions now. So if you raise your hand, I will come to you. So, um, so I actually, I grew up in Texas in the 60s. And uh, I, I've read a bit about LBJ, and it still seems to me very remarkable that a man from his background would take this stand on civil rights, and one that he clearly was aware was going to harm his party, particularly in the South. And I'm just wondering if any historians, if there are any writings he's left that really have, have given any in insight into how he developed this conviction. I think the, more, the case that I've seen, I mean, you know, and um, among some historians, uh, and there must be some, some analogous version in Robert Caro's 3,000 pages, if, uh, but, uh, which are very rich. But Caro really has a, such a weird relationship to, to Johnson that's a little unreliable. But that, but that Johnson, Johnson did have, I mean, that there, were, there were two things. One was that he, since he grew up very poor, um, and sort of poor and then fallen poor, I mean, his fear that that he that he would f fall or lose his father had sort of kind of scraped his way into a kind of middle class life and then lost it and became desperately poor, um, but that he Johnson believed he believed in education, okay? and he really really you know he went to Southwest Texas Teachers College, um, but he really and he did believe that you know education and hard work could do it. He also taught for a year at a Mexican school. In Texas, and some of his biographers point to that as a period that really just may have given him um, more empathy than what one might have, uh, you know, looked for otherwise. I mean, I, you know, I, I surely don't know. I don't have a clear, a clear answer, but I think that uh, he did. He really did have this, uh, this this thing about education, equal opportunity, and and that that would that in turn would solve a whole lot of problems. I mean, one of the other pieces, important pieces of legislation actually that he passes in this period, in the period of, the, of this play, is an education bill. Other questions? Um, I'm originally from Louisiana. My dad born in the same year as Lyndon Johnson, and even has a hairstyle and glasses, <laughs> and. Um, Though he was a Baptist minister, he never used the colorful speech that Lyndon did, but he was fascinated by politics. And he did make the decision, you know, a turnaround from racism to compassion um, when he was getting, trying to earn money working the fields, you know, um, his family didn't have money, but at least they had land and, you know, worked hard. Uh, working with blacks, and he saw the whole thing was wrong, so eventually he left the South, but he worked behind the scenes because he knew he was not a politician. He admired them. He, he said, 
the thing about Harry Truman, whom he met, he could remember everybody's name, everybody, you know, that it takes a special breed of man to be a politician, and Johnson had all kinds of guts, and, you know, to, to be able to do this. I, um, I remember a lot of criticism toward Johnson, um, and his lifestyle and everything, and even Walter Chaton, whose restaurant I ate at several times, who was his special barbecuer when the White House was going to have barbecue parties. Um, you had to have good barbecue. Well, now, I always say our Kansans have better barbecue than Texans. He's a Texan. I'm, um, but just a kidding. But, you know, there was that, I remember that whole milieu so very well. And there's something that did change in both these men. Um, but what I'm seeing now is what doesn't change when I hear the name calling in Congress, they, they call each other, you know, the Republicans use Nazis and we're all gonna go the way of Hitler because of Obamacare and stuff. Would you address that? This kind of, it's sort of a propaganda technique, isn't it? To, to attack your enemy this way? Well, I, th I mean, it, it is, I'm not sure it's a propaganda technique. I think it's an expression. I mean, it, it's it's both trying to get attention in um, in a world where the rhetorical, where the decibel level is already high, and you 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 have, you have to go even higher. Um, I think. Uh, let me turn your question slightly differently. Okay. Um, I think one of the troubling things when I look at the contemporary world. Um, and, and then back to the period of the 1960s is that on the one hand this is a period of real change and real things get accomplished, okay? On the other hand, um, there is, you know, the fact often noted that if you draw the electoral map of the United States after presidential elections, it looks a lot like, this, like the, the electoral map at the time of the Civil War, okay? And so that there's, there, are pat there are enduring patterns. Uh, state by state. I mean, the, obviously the party configuration has changed because all the Richard Russells of our day are now Republicans. Uh, but, uh, but a lot of the same basic politics, uh, you know, has, has stayed pretty much the same. And there's red baiting going on now even though there's no Cold War. Very impressive. A couple more questions we have time for. Since much of this uh, play has to do with the, the character of Johnson, I'd like to ask two questions. Uh, years ago, I read a biography of Johnson, and there were mentions there uh, as to the period of time when he was in the legislature that he may have been involved in the murder of somebody. Uh, this play never got, nobody ever blackmailed him on that in this play. And the other thing I wanted to ask, um, the, the motion picture, The Butler, which we're all probably current with, uh, there was a picture of an irate um, uh, Lyndon Johnson conducting a state business from a toilet seat. Was he ever that crude? Yeah. He was. That's for real. Yeah. Okay, so that, that, that's for real. Um, and on the murder question, um, if I remember this correctly, um, the What this involved, and it was all rumor and allegation, was um, there was a there was a, there was a man named Billy Saul Estes, uh, who was a sort of a crony and financial supporter 
of Johnson's who got fertilizer. Right, right. Fertilizer came. Right. Who got into some serious sort of corruption trouble and actually got indicted. Um, and one of one of the, if not the leading witness against him, um, was found. <laughs> is what, I'm sorry, I'm laughing, but you'll understand why I'm laughing in a second. Um, he was he was found shot and declared to be a suicide, even though he had five shotgun shells in it. <laughs> from, from a pump-acting shotgun. <laughs> it was really hard to imagine how he got those. Very dedicated. <laughs> and there were rumors that Johnson and people around him had, you know, were somehow complicit in the murder um, in order to protect Billy Solestis, um, in part because Billy Solestis had the goods on Johnson about various you know, shady things he did. I mean, you know, Johnson, uh, you know, my the favorite sort of Johnson's political corruption is in fact in his, when he want, he talks in the play about having lost that first Senate seat and, and, and felt that it was stolen. Well, when he, when he, when he won the Senate, um, he won by a total margin of 87 votes, okay, in a statewide election. And near the end of a prolonged ballot counting uh, period, suddenly in, I think it was called Jim Wells County in Texas that was controlled by a boss far who was a, was a, a crony of Lyndon, they suddenly discovered 200 votes that had not been counted before and that were counted, but what was especially remarkable about these things, about these votes and the votes broke something like 198 to 2 in favor of Johnson, was that the voters who had cast these 200 ballots had voted all in the last hour that the, that the, that the polls were open. They had voted in alphabetical order and signed in with the same handwriting. <laughs> I think we have time for one more question. Yes, can you speak really loudly? You, you do the same thing you do if there were two people in the play. You just do it a lot more. And, uh, you know, a lot of it's traffic. A lot of it's Bill Roush, you know, had, had done the play in, in, uh, in Ashland, uh, Oregon, the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. I actually saw it up there. And uh, it really has that great feel of where are these people coming from? And the fact that we're switching wigs and, 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 and all that, you know, it, it's, it, uh, it's pretty easy to keep straight who is who, though. I mean, uh, just by doing individual scene work and uh, also working with a script that is really, really clear and there's nothing murky about any of these characters. We're, we're, we're there to, to deliver the goods and, uh, and that, that really helps, you know. Uh, there's a you know, the, 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 the guy who's shadowing Mr. Deloche, who's shadowing me the entire play, is kind of my, my confidant in the play. Um, our relationship is, is that simple. You know, he's there for somebody for me to talk to so that you all can, can hear. 
you know. Uh, and he was a real guy, and he didn't sit there and type, and I didn't, I didn't actually, J. Edgar Hoover didn't dictate this letter. The letter is verbatim. That really is a letter that was sent to, to, to Mrs. King. Uh, but it was written by some other guy who actually later talked about it. Um, but uh, it, like I say, it's just the simple question is, is, the, is the true one. It's just you do all the homework and you just realize who you are to everyone, no matter who you are, no matter who, no matter who they are at the time. Um, but it's an awful lot of fun, by the way. I mean, as serious as this stuff is, it's an awful lot of fun to do. And we had audiences like this, this and it's just it's gravy. So thank you for that. Great. I was just going to ask Michael one more question. Okay. <laughs> Okay, well, it's okay, we'll wrap it up there. Thank you, no, thank no, you, you very know. much for ask, ask me, ask me. No, I was, you mentioned that Robert Shankin was here during yes. the rehearsal process with you, and the, and the script did change over the rehearsal process. Some. Do you want to mention some of the changes that the, were made? The, the main change that affected me, there were a few cuts made, mostly it's, 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 it's uh, the same as we walked in here with. Uh, the main change was in the final sequence where we're over, the trio, we call it, where the three events are happening. That was originally just a duo. It was originally just Hoover and King. And so King accepting the, the, the Nobel Prize and Hoover trying his best to, to trash his, his, his legacy. And the speech to the New Orleans crowd, which also really happened, was added and it made a really nice balance of story, I think. You know, it, it, it really, you know, two men who really had a lot in common on either side of the stage and one demon in the middle, you know, it just, it, it made for, for better drama, you know, that's, that's the main change, I think. There'll be a few more changes I'm, under, I'm led to understand, because we are going to New York, and uh, yeah, very good news. Well, I'd like to thank Alex and Michael so much for coming, thank the Ash Center as well, and thank you all for